Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. Our show, Good Books Radio, is sponsored by the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And with me today is Ben Court. In 2007, Ben Court left his role as a director of the Denver-based S&P 500 firm to help start a nonprofit called Phoenix Multisport. This career move was the first time that Ben joined his vocational life and his recovery. He's been a part of the field ever since. Over the last 10 years, Ben has been a leader inside of several Colorado-based nonprofits, including the Substance Abuse Treatment Program at the University of Colorado Hospital. His work includes on various boards, in the media, and within his community has allowed Ben ample opportunity to do what he loves most, help point those suffering from addiction toward recovery. Ben's own recovery from addiction fuels all that he does professionally, including the founding of an organization called Addiction Treatment Marketers Organization that works to establish ethical standards for marketing and admissions officials inside the treatment field. Between his ethics training and marijuana-related education, Ben speaks live to tens of thousands of people each year all across the country, including mental health professionals, kids and educators, law enforcement medical professionals, corporate leaders, professional athletes, government officials, and parents. Ben consults within the treatment field, as well as with state governments, the National Football League, the National Football League Players Association, and when he isn't working, Ben loves nothing more than to spend time with his wife and kids in that order. Anything that involves a fly rod, a tent, a motorcycle, or a good book is sure to distract him in his spare time. For more, for, for more information, contact Ben at www.courtconsult.com. That's Court, C-O-R-T. Ben's book is Weed, Inc., The Truth About THC, The Pot Lobby, and the Commercial Marijuana Industry. Ben, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Dr. Cook. It's a pleasure to be here with you. This is, uh, this is a great book. Our program, uh, at least uh, on my side, I have a co-host, but I've interviewed three uh, authors of books on weed. One was a person who dealt with tre- treatment addiction, especially the Vietnam vets, and he is for de- uh, uh, decriminalization, but not for re- uh, uh, legalization. And then uh, we've had a couple of medical doctors who've shown how they used hemp oil extracts uh, for some really great results for um, PTSD, for chronic pain, for um, depression, for nausea symptoms associated with chemotherapy, and one medical doctor claims he's cured stage 4 cancer using some hemp oil extracts. So there's some really good benefits to weed. Sure. Um, there's, well, I'll, I'll correct it just a little if you don't mind. There's some really good benefits to components found inside of the cannabis plant. Yes, that, 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 is, that is a good correction <laughs> because most of what they do has nothing to do with the psychoactive component THC and everything to do with CBD and other uh, chemicals that are available when you treat weed in certain ways, when you cook it properly. Well, let's talk. That, that's it, exactly. <laughs> and the vernacular is so important here. Un- understanding the differences between the components and then the, the whole plant, I think, is really crucial to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the distinction between decriminalization versus commercialization, because that's really a- an underlying theme throughout this book about what's gone awry in California and in, in Colorado. Certainly. Um, decriminalization is the idea that users will not be punished for possession and typically we're talking about possession of um, amounts that would be associated with individual use not people who are trafficking in any sort of substance and decriminalization um, is has been you know here and there spotty throughout the United States like for example Colorado has basically had uh, decriminalized marijuana since 2001 California since the late 90s and I've always liked the idea I think that um, you know as a recovering drug addict myself uh, moving away from 
for, at least for the low-level users, moving away from purely punitive, sometimes punitive is needed, but moving away from that towards um, solution-based has always struck me as a smart idea. Commercialization and the industrialization that's taken place is, um, is is really what this movement is about at its core, I believe, because there's just so much money inside of it. And so you move away from the idea that, okay, we're not going to punish people uh, to the idea that we are going to allow corporate interests to kind of drive the conversation and big business to, to be what this is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so many advocates for legalization have said that marijuana is harmless, that it doesn't cause as many problems as alcohol, and so on. Um, but THC, uh, according to that article in Lancet that you cited, um, although uh, it's very popular in use, uh, equals more psychosis and more mental illness. Yeah, that particular study has actually been um, validated twice over, and it was a really, really good study to begin with. But what we're starting to see is that um, the the benign nature of this substance um, is really dependent on it being as close to the natural form as possible. Like, the, the less THC you have in it, the closer you have to the plant that grows naturally in nature, what God made, um, the less harmful it is. But as we have genetically modified this, and as the chemists have sort of taken the place of the gardeners, um, these higher potency THC products actually have some pretty significant uh, detrimental side effects, uh, and, and probably leading that charge would be the THC-induced psychosis that you mentioned. It's um, it, it's becoming very prevalent, actually, out there in the world, and that's new. It, it really was not before that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about what's shaking in Colorado and how fast things are moving there. Because as we as we found ways to increase the THC to, or they found ways to increase the THC to to incredible levels. Uh, it, it's just so much different than your than my THC of the seventies. Okay, <laughs> it is, <laughs> or even mine of the nineties. Okay, um, it, it was like two to four percent naturally occurring, and they've raised it to what level's maximum? Well, actually, naturally occurring, so pre-1960s, what naturally occurs inside of cannabis is less than half of a percent of THC. Uh So as we look back to um, the interaction that mankind has had with this substance for thousands and thousands of years, until the 60s, we were always looking at half a percent. And then through kind of the the mid-70s, we got to 4%. Um, and before commercialization in Colorado, the national average was 13%, and now uh, you can find um, organic material, flowers in Colorado, with THC concentrations um, above 30%, and our concentrates, which actually we sell more of the concentrates in Colorado than we do the the plant, our concentrates can be as high as 98%. Mm Well, we all know it can be smoked, but it can also be vaped and absorbed topically. But let's talk about the edibles a little bit, because that was a really scary part of the book for me. The sodas, the candies, all of the things they're making now over there. Yeah, it it was pretty wild. You know, I I heard all the stories, and of course, being around it and having three young kids myself, I, I thought I was pretty well educated on it. And the more research that I did into it, um, the the more concerning that topic is, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners saw the news last week about the um, 
the fifth grader who brought um, his grandfather's THC uh, infused gummy bears into class and shared them with the class. Mm. And it's these kind of things that are just getting more and more prevalent because we've moved away from baked goods, brownies and cookies and and things that um, uh, earlier generations were used to where you actually like cooked the plant into it um, to now a world where, and one of the things I like to say in my talks is that if it can be introduced into the human body in any way imaginable, it's being commercially produced in Colorado with THC in it. Um, sodas, coffees, certainly the gummy bears and the cookies and the book, ice cream, cotton candy, um, suppositories, absolutely everything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And the the idea that a sugary soda can have 350 milligrams of THC <laughs> right. is just <laughs> frightening. I mean, th- this is one of the things, and the food industry does the same thing. When they put the ingredients and the percentage of ingredients, they say they, for, for one serving. But when you start looking at what the serving sizes are for the gummy bears, for instance, what are we looking at there? So the best example of the gummy bear bears is by a company called Edipure that actually manufactures um, gummy bears that have 10 legal servings of THC per gummy bear. Um, so you can have 10 milligrams of THC in one serving. And yeah, they here followed the food industry's lead with that. Um, I, I was eating a bag of yogurt pretzels at the airport yesterday. I thought, man, these are why are these so delicious? And so they had 15 milligrams of sugar in them, but it was 15 milligrams for six. Uh-huh. And yeah, I was three quarters of the way through the bag before I realized that just had about 15 servings. Probably. Mm-hmm. We, and it's the yeah. exact same thing here. Yeah, we, we've had a book called Lethal But Legal that talks about the food industry and the alcohol industry and the cigarette industry. And, mm. and the idea of lethal but legal really applies as an underlying theme of what you're talking about here because um, th- there's it's moving so fast and the, the federal government doesn't regulate and the state government doesn't have the resources to regulate this. Correct. And so we've got coffee and ice cream and baked goods and suckers and cotton candy and soda and tea and hot cocoa and breath mints and uh, intimate oils and pills and toffee and granola and caramels and marinara sauce and baklava and the list goes on and on of all the products oh, yeah. they're putting THC into. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's um, a- as a form of consumption, you know, when you think about that from the industry standpoint, from the manufacturer standpoint, it's good business. Anything at all that I can do to introduce THC to a person um, increases the likelihood that they're going to be a good customer for me. Do, do you remember that? I don't know if you saw that movie, Thank You for Smoking. Mm-hmm. Years yes. ago, it was a fantastic film, but there was a point in it where the protagonist was having a conversation with an executive from a cigarette company, and he said, we don't sell cigarettes, we sell nicotine delivery systems. <laughs> and I think if people were to consider this in the same way, like, this isn't about weed, this is about THC delivery systems and what the drive is to get people to consume that earlier, more frequently, and in a greater potency, um, I think we'd have to ask ourselves some hard questions about Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's turn our attention a little bit to the lobby because you know when I was uh, growing up, it, normal was a group of burned out potheads. You know they were they were just long haired hippies that smoked doobies, but uh, the advocacy, the people who are advocating for weed nowadays are an entirely different group. They certainly are, and um, I end up 
opposite on shows a lot of the times, these different folks, and uh, the easiest ones for me to converse with are normal because um, they're what you said. They're, they are consumers. They are people who appreciate um, weed, and I, I never had any sort of an issue with that. We can find common ground. Um, but they really have been replaced by groups like the, the Drug Policy Alliance, the Marijuana Policy Project, and and these guys are funded with some exceptionally deep pockets. Um, Richard Branson is a, a big contributor behind um, a, a lot of what goes on. And um, there's like literally hundreds of millions of dollars behind this lobby now, whereas normal was just kind of um, people who were advocating to get police out of their lives. It's... It, the, the guys in tie-dye shirts have really been replaced by the guys in Armani suits. Mm-hmm. And just like in other industries, it's profits over public safety and public health. Absolutely. And one of the tricks here that you just pointed out a moment ago was that um, the federal government has no control over this. So there's it's, it's an interesting case study in federal law versus state law for those who are uh, inclined in that direction. But basically, um, since it's a federally illegal substance, any federal agency cannot have anything to do with regulating it uh, unless they be complicit in breaking federal law. So you've got these long-standing consumer protections that exist inside of organizations like FDA, um, that do not apply to anything that has THC associated with it. So we have really let um, industry drive the conversation rather than a lot of these organizations, flawed as some of them may be, uh, but who have been charged with decades for keeping us safe. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the battle over this law A64 that was passed. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that... that didn't surprise me because I have a feeling that most legislation is this way, is that it was written by the lobbyists, not by the legislators who passed it, right? Oh, yeah, and I just, if, if, if one out of ten people in the world understand, understood how laws came into being, I think we would be a lot more critical voters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are an awful lot of people who are looking for what they consider to be freedom by the legalization of marijuana, and that includes not only Richard Branson, but uh, George Soros, who ha- also has deep pockets. But you mentioned uh, Sting and Harry Belafonte and, of course, Ariana Huffington. Um, yeah. And and it, it also seems like not only does the lobby write the laws, but they also write the news that goes into the media to some extent. Man, it does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? It's, um, you, you see, you, when when I open up my browser, I think because they predict the things I want to read, most of the stories um, are about weed. It, it is such an incredible disproportionate number of them that are really blatantly for and, you know, not looking at all of the data or not looking at all of the survey, but sort of reporting back on what feels like a very biased position from the author. And, you know, that's a much larger problem than, than just weed in this country today. The, the idea of objective journalism seems to have fallen by the wayside to allow for opinion-based journalism. But we, we are not oftentimes getting the full story. And it's interesting the difference between, um, you know, when I'll go to a medical conference and present versus when I will go and talk to, to young people or um, executives or something. The, the physicians, they 
they know what's really going on because they keep up to date on the literature. But everybody else seems to just be absolutely shocked that maybe marijuana is not an uh, end-all solution to everything in the world. And I typically like to caution people there, make up your own mind, do your thing. But if somebody's telling you that they've got something for you that'll fix absolutely everything in your life and all you got to do is buy it over here, um, I should probably raise my brow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shortly before he passed, uh, William F. Buckley Jr., one of my favorite articulate conservatives, uh, wrote a piece about how we should just legalize all drugs. He was saying cocaine, heroin, all of it, and that it will be much cheaper to fight the a war on addiction than the war on drugs. He even made the argument that when we uh, had prohibition, the bootleggers had uh, more powerful arms and more money, just like the cartels do now, and if we legalize it, just like we did back then, the, the bootleggers uh, didn't have as much power after that. But it's it's not quite that simple, is it? We, the cartels won't just go away if we legalize this stuff. You know, well, they have not, and, and no, they certainly will not. You know, it's a relatively small portion of their profit that comes from cannabis. But even that argument, where I, I think that there's there's certainly good intention in it, because what a, what a brilliant man. But also, um, we tend to really oversimplify a lot of very complex issues so that we can try to understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody would argue that prohibition was an incredible success at all because of what happened with organized crime. However, um, when, when you look at the nascent public data that we had from back then, what you see are significantly reduced rates of um, cirrhosis and even of domestic violence and things. And so, wow, I, I, I'm definitely not taking a position that we need to go back there. All of these things are intertwined and connected. And were you to legalize um, everything, again, let's differentiate between decriminalizing and allowing for the commercial use of, one of the big things that you have to fight against is the perception of harm. So the, the single biggest indicator for youth use is the perception of harm of any substance. And as we have increased the perceived harm for tobacco, you have seen a decrease in the use among youth. And what you really want to do when it comes to mood-altering substances is delay the use of that substance as long as you can in young people because um, that's when we have the, the really bad things that happen inside of our society. If, if everybody waited until their brains were fully myelinated at 25, 26, the world would just be a better place. But if we were to move to a place where we um, simply decriminalized things or, uh, God forbid, co- allowed the commercialization of them, um, one of my fears would be that you would be given a message to younger people of permissiveness, and they could potentially um, begin earlier, consume more, and then you would see more issues. So you've certainly got to look at organized crime, and you've certainly got to look at the um, the other issues associated with black market. But at the same time, you, you really do have to look at the substance-specific effects on the brain and what, what would happen if more people used it earlier. Very good. I, and I, I don't want to omit the, the truth is that although the, the bootleggers had less power after we, we lifted prohibition, there was a little bit the FBI had to do with that, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's uh, that a little bit the FBI had to do with that, a little bit the CIA had to do with cocaine and crack cocaine in the 80s. And, yeah, our, our government certainly hasn't been um, – they, 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 they have not been always on the up and up. Well, your uh, your argument uh, about uh, 
in the book you talk about how many people say this is a war that can't be won, the war on drugs, and therefore we should quit fighting it, some people say, and you have a great response to that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think that, one, um, you, you can't measure a thing that is not or has not been, and so to say that it has been an overwhelming failure, um, we have no alternative to compare it to. We can look at other countries who've done it differently, but I would propose that the American style of capitalism that many subscribe to here makes us pretty unique. And I also think that um, I I don't want to throw in the towel on... Certainly, war is a terrible word because it makes us think of violence and guns and fighting, but I would not want to throw in the towel and, and stop having productive and real conversations about how we truly mitigate the harm of these mind-altering substances, because as we're seeing today with the opioid crisis, man, when you let commercial interests drive everything that's going on, a lot of the times we find ourselves kind of staring down a barrel of a gun and finding out how we got here. So I think it's really important to to keep fighting and keep pushing um, before we just decide we're, we're going to step away from it completely and, and let, <laughs> let whatever is be, uh, because I think that the, the folks trying to make money are going to be the ones who fill that gap. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's it's poignant to point out that just because uh, we have difficulty enforcing the law and there's still people breaking it doesn't mean we should stop enforcing it. It means we should stop enforcing laws against murder or laws against burglary or any other crime committed. Certainly. Yeah. We are never going to have 100% compliance with any of them. And I think the the example that I gave in the book was, was with speeding. You know, if, if you want to apply the same logic, we have absolutely lost the war against speeding because... <laughs> There's still a lot of speeding tickets given out, but that doesn't mean that we need to, you know, do what Montana did in the 90s and say, okay, there's no speed limit anymore, uh, because we know better than that. And I think it took Montana two years to realize that that wasn't a very good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we have to continue having intelligent and informed conversations about this rather than these quick knee-jerk reactions. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a couple of the things that have uh been challenges for the folks in Colorado since this came to be. One is the NIMBY principle, the not-in-my-backyard principle about weed shops. Yeah. Um, This is really one that I I wish would get more attention. Um, As is almost always the case with less-than-desirable businesses, they tend to find their way into the economically depressed areas. And uh, for, for whatever reason, there's less community pushback, there's less resources to fight them. Uh, and in my home state, um, the, the correlation between race and income is really significant. I think it's more than just my home state. So the example, well, the easiest example is, um, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood very, very different than the one I grew up in, and I'm trying to give my kids a very different experience than how I grew up in, and it's a upper-middle-class white neighborhood, and I don't have a weed shop for eight miles from my house. Um, the the most um, prolific saturation of weed shops in Denver is in a place called uh, Globeville, downtown Denver, where it's a 93% African American and 5% Hispanic. The average income is uh, $17,000 a year, and there is one marijuana shop for every, uh, I think it's 42 or 43 residents. Mm-hmm. And and your your concern about uh the weed shops in the poor and black neighborhoods, you, you also mentioned 
they, they may be targeting those neighborhoods, but they also seem to be targeting young people by opening up close to schools as well. Yeah, there are, um, in fact, the, the Denver Post did a, a great um, story on that recently as well. Um, the amount of cannabis shops and direct uh, proximity to schools, you know, junior high, uh, elementary, and high school, is, is pretty profound in the more economically depressed areas in Denver. And they are not, um, there are absolutely setbacks that they have to abide by. But a lot of the times what they're doing is these setbacks are on the inch what they have to be. And while they may be, you know, a thousand feet away from a school, um, uh, kids have to pass two or three of them as they walk to school in the morning. And so, you know, it's not like they're running a gauntlet because there's people out there jumping out and trying to sell them drugs. Like we, we do not see that. You don't see shops selling to underage people. I go into them all of the time, and they do keep – it's strict. you got to show your ID twice at least. But it's this idea of um, – it's this idea of of, bring, of normalizing, of integrating into regular life, where these young folks, if they walk by them again and again and again, you know, it's the big deal. It's just weed, and that is absolutely the um, the attitude that we have in Colorado with our, our younger folks. What's the big deal? It's it's just weed, and the reality is that for them, it, it is not benign. Uh, these brains that do not have fully developed frontal lobes that are not fully myelinated, it, it is a pretty big deal for them. Mm-hmm. And another risk is driving under the influence. People think it's no big deal to drive when you're high, but you have some interesting cases reported there, like the kid who it, uh, ran over a girl on, on her bicycle. Yeah, that was actually right near my house. And um, it, it's driving high is a, a really big deal, and it's interesting to see sort of these talking heads now from some of those organizations we mentioned, the DPA and the MPP pushing back and saying, um, it's a lot better than driving drunk, and it's the, it, it, which is interesting because it's like they're putting it out there like it's an either-or scenario, it's simple. But downplaying the significance of it, when you you go on YouTube or even watching, uh, was watching some Netflix um show about drugs and the, the guy was driving and smoking the whole time like driving under the influence is not okay driving under the influence of anything is not okay and driving under the influence of thc is a lot more dangerous than most people recognize and i would point your listeners to some of the uh, remarkable work being done right now by a woman named marilyn Hustis. Uh, if they want to learn more about that but there's instances where um, you can take large sample groups and see that it's somebody who's intoxicated on THC are actually about eight times more likely uh, to be in an MVA than um, somebody who's who's legally drunk. Yeah, and in that case near your house, the, his window was down and the father was screaming stop, and he thought he had hit a curb, and what he did was kill a little girl of eight years old. And and he kept driving, even with the dad chasing him, and um, it, it was a really... I mean, it was absolutely tragic, and it also was very, very telling because we agreed to this total guard. There's no basis for this science. Um, the, the five nanograms per milliliter is intoxicated behind the wheel is what we've decided in Colorado, and there's no scientific basis whatsoever for that. 
so this young man actually um, had nothing else in the system. It was only THC, and he had um, two nanograms per milliliter in his system, which would have been not intoxicated uh, based on that limit that we set. However, he failed uh, roadside sobriety test by a, what's called a DRE, a drug recognition expert who's a specially trained law enforcement officer who classified him as being high on THC, um, even though he would have passed a, a simple blood test for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk uh, a lot about the difficulty of enforcing this because you can't just give a breathalyzer test for weed, uh, and and people should read about that. But I don't want to leave the conversation with only a couple with only a minute left without touching on concentrates because that's a really mm-hmm. scary point, part of this to me. Yeah, these are. This is not fringe use. I think the most important thing for your listeners to understand is that concentrates are not fringe use. They're mainstream use. People are initiating on them, and people are using them frequently throughout the day. And a concentrate is basically, without boring you with all of the details, it's stripping all of the THC out of the plant into a rock-like form or a butter-like form, and then smoking it typically on a superheated needle. And that's where we have our THC levels very regularly come in above 90%. Mm-hmm. Not only are these, um, uh, we, we do not know what they're doing to the human brain and body, but it, it's not good. Um, they do not have a place in society, and we should really be putting the brakes on those things right now until we have a better understanding of them. However, there's a lot of money to be made selling them, so you see them pushed everywhere. Right. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, this is a great read about what happens when capitalism meets a mind-altering substance. The book is called Weed, Inc., The Truth About THC, The Pot Lobby, and the Commercial Marijuana Industry. The author is Ben Court, and you can find more information at www.courtconsult.com. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast on the air, you can also catch up with us on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening.